If you have a Bible, turn me to the back of the Bible, the book of Revelation, as we start part four in a sermon series looking at the first five chapters in the a book of Revelation entitled The Triumph of the Lamb. And specifically where we're focusing is we're focusing on the portrait that this incredible book gives us of this risen lamb named Jesus, this triumphant lamb. And chapter one is going to use some incredible vivid language to describe the reality of who he is right now uh, and what he is doing. And then there's going to be letters that are going to be sent to seven churches in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. Um, and we are looking at those. That's chapters two and three. And then it's going to show us a picture of this, this lamb who was slain but alive. Like a picture of the throne room in verses four and five. And so that's where we're going to navigate. Uh, this morning, we are looking at the church, one of our favorite names of Smyrna. But what I love, it was on this very date, on this date, February 2nd, February 2nd, 156, a mere 1864 years ago in the city of Smyrna in Asia Minor, that the leader in that church in Smyrna was brutally martyred on this day. Robbie, you remember you were there? <laughs> Sorry, Robbie, that was that was that was needless. That was wrong. Getting a laugh, feeling good about myself at your expense. But can you tell us more about that day? <laughs> His name was Polycarp. Polycarp, he was found in a hiding place after his congregation had urged him, knowing that it was no longer safe to stay in Smyrna, they urged him to go into hiding. And on February 2nd, he was found. He was found and he, uh, bad things had happened to him. I'm going to tell you about it. And actually how I'm going to tell you about it is I want to read to you the martyrdom story from the pen of one of my favorite pastors, one of my favorite theologians, one of my favorite authors, especially under commentary, it's John Stott. John Stott was a pastor in England in All Souls Church. And this is what he says happened on February 2nd. It's pretty amazing. Lean in. It was February 2nd, probably in the year 156. The venerable bishop who had fled from the city at the pleading of his congregation was tracked down to his hiding place. He made no attempt to flee. Instead, he offered food and drink to his captors and asked permission to retire for prayer, for which he did for two hours. Then, as they traveled into the city, the officer in charge urged him to recant. What harm can, can it do, he asked, to sacrifice to the emperor? Polycarp refused. On arrival, he was roughly pushed out of the carriage and brought before the proconsul in the amphitheater, who addressed him, Respect your years, swear by the genius of Caesar, and again, swear, and I will release you, revile Christ. To which Polycarp replied, For 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? 
the proconsul persisted. Swear by the genius of Caesar. I have wild beasts. If you will not change your mind, I will throw you to them. Call them, Polycarp replied. Since you make light of the beast, I will have you destroyed by fire unless you change your attitude. Angry Jews and Gentiles then gathered wood for the pile. Polycarp stood by the stake, asking not to be fastened to it, and prayed, O Lord, Almighty God, the Father of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have come to know you, I thank you for counting me worthy this day and hour of sharing the cup of Christ among the number of your martyrs. The fire was lit, but the wind drove the flames away from him and prolonged his suffering. A soldier put an end to his misery with a sword. Wow. What an amazing testimony of a man of God. Smyrna was an impressive city in Asia Minor. It's probably only rivaled by Ephesus. It was a successful port on the city, on the sea, a GNC with a natural area to protect that port. Uh, it is the only one of the seven cities, uh, the ancient uh, church, that is still in existence. It's modern day Izmir uh, in Turkey. Homer, Homer from the Odyssey and Iliad fame was from Smyrna. Uh, it was the first city uh, that the Romans uh, to build a, a temple uh, so that the Roman Caesar could be uh, worshipped. They were awarded that. They were one of the first cities to worship as deity, the Roman emperor. Uh, they were passionate. They were a passionate city that participated in what's called the imperial cult of Rome basically sacrificing to the Roman gods and sacrificing to the Roman Caesar. And if you could distinguish at that time in the Roman Empire, the blue states or the red states, I'm not sure what color they'd pick, that were really, really adamant about Rome. This would be them. They were adamant about following uh, the Rome and being a part of the Roman uh, emperor. And that was a bad thing. When a city is very loyal to Rome, it usually didn't go well for Christians. Interestingly, also in Smyrna, there was a big Jewish population. Um, and here's an interesting piece about the, uh, the Jewish population. They were actually given by Julius Caesar an exemption to participate in that Roman uh, imperial cult. They didn't have to do it. It was really the reason why that Caesar, Julius Caesar, gave them that exemption was at a time of civil war, the Jews in Jerusalem decided to stay loyal to Rome. And because of that loyalty, Julius Caesar awarded them saying, okay, you don't have to sacrifice to our gods. But he asked him this, will you please pray for me? I always find that interesting. No matter how pagan a person might be, no matter how agnostic or atheist, when they know you believe, they often ask for prayer. Will you pray for me? The Jewish population was also an amazingly difficult population for the Christians. Although they were exempt, they really persecuted the Christians. They wanted to make sure that they didn't get that exemption too. And when the, exempt, and when the Christians stood up and said, no, 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 we're not going to sacrifice to Caesar. We're not going to participate in this pagan cult. The Jews pointed it out and slandered them. 
The church in Smyrna was probably founded by the Apostle Paul on his third missionary journey. John installed, listen to this, tradition tells us, John who wrote it, the Apostle John, he installed, guess who, Polycarp as the bishop. Polycarp was probably 27 years old when the very first time this letter arrived in Smyrna. He probably heard it with his very own ears. And in the letter, Polycarp was warned that there was trouble brewing. And he was told that the triumphant risen lamb, Jesus, just trust in him. Polycarp was told in this letter, be faithful unto death. Well, today is the anniversary of Polycarp's fulfillment of that command. This morning, as we examine the letter of Smyrna, some uh, 1,864 years after Polycarp's martyrdom, we'll see that a suffering church, listen to this, a suffering church can be a flourishing church. A suffering church can be, and often is, a flourishing church. And we're going to look at four key things, not just for them, but for us. Who the triumphant lamb is, as it gives us in this letter. What the triumphant lamb knows, and this will, this will just set you free. What the triumphant lamb commands, and what the triumphant lamb promises. So let's look to God's holy word. It's only, this is the shortest of letters in chapter 2. Uh, it's only verses 8 through 11. And by the way, this is only one of two churches that doesn't receive a rebuke. This church and the church of, uh, of Philadelphia, the only two that, that the risen lamb Jesus doesn't have some things to say. You got to shore these up. So it's an amazing church that was doing really well in the midst of some deep, deep persecution. So let's hear the word of the Lord, Revelation 2, beginning in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear for what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. For and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The grass wither, the flowers fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Now, Father God, we thank you that we have your word, your word that will encourage us not to be afraid, to be faithful even unto death. And we thank you that we have history that will show us those like Polycarp that were obedient to you that in the midst of their own martyrdom, they weren't afraid. He, they didn't want to be fastened to a stake. He could stand there on his own. It's amazing. Who was faithful even unto death. But God, our hope is not in the faith of Polycarp. Our hope is in the work of your son, the triumphant lamb, the one too who was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So God, come and join us with the power of your Spirit. Give us ears to hear your voice. Give us minds to understand your word. Give us hearts that would embrace your truth. 
and give us feet to walk in a manner worthy of your name. God, do that which only you could do. Speak through a broken sinner like me. God, the things that I say that are just my opinion are wrong. May those things fall away and be forgotten quickly. But the things that are said that are true and contain the good news of the gospel, would you use those things, those words, those living words, those gospel words, to shape us, to be more like your Son, our Savior Jesus, and it's matchless name that we pray. Amen. So the first thing we're going to see this morning is who the triumph of the Lamb is. In each one of the letters, Jesus is going to describe himself to us. And the words that he's using, especially if you're new to the series, it's interesting. The words he uses, like the first and the last, and the one who is dead and now alive, every time he uses this description throughout these seven letters, he's reaching back to chapter 1. Because in chapter 1, he gave us this portrait. And now he's going to take the portrait in chapter 1. He's going to apply it to each one of the churches and show why that is important. And he says this. He says who he is. This is triumphant land. He is the first and the last. This one who was born in Bethlehem. This one who was crucified in Calvary. This one, he is the eternal one. He is the word of God who always has been and always will be. He is that eternal one. He is more than just that. He is the one who died and came to life. He is the living one. He's the one that death can never, ever touch again. He has conquered death. He has defeated it. So who is this triumphant lamb who is speaking to us? Listen, this is God, the eternal one. Don't be afraid. He's with us. This is God, the living one. He's conquered all yours and my enemies. Don't be afraid. This is the greatest of combos. To be eternal, the Alpha and the Omega, to be the living one. You see, in Jesus, now as a resurrected Savior, he has truly it all. All power and authority have been given to him. So where do we find him? In the midst of our tribulation, he is bigger and stronger, and he has conquered everything you face. Now hit pause right there. In the midst of anything you go through, he's with you. In the midst of whatever you will face, he's bigger, and he's stronger, and he's conquered. And he and he alone is the only one who's got the right to give us this, this crown of life, to give us this victory of what he has done. So who the triumphal lamb is? There's really, really good news there. Did you see it? I hope you did. And I hope it makes your heart start beating faster. But not only that, it's what the triumphant lamb knows. Last week, we, we realized that he is in our midst and what he knows is really, really important. And he says this, he knows your tribulation. Oh yes, there's trouble right here in, River, right here in Smyrna City with a capital T and that rhymes with P and that stands for persecution and poverty. Did anybody sing along with me? Does anybody know the music man right here? I know I'm old singing the music man. I mean, you were there when it was written. <laughs> but there was trouble in Smyrna City with a capital T that rhymes with P and that stands for persecution and poverty. And when it says that they were experiencing tribulation, it's interesting. This is in the Greek, this word is in the singular. And it means serious trouble. The burden that crushes, living in great tribulation. Hit pause. Have you been there? Have you had tribulation? Serious trouble? I mean, real serious? A burden that crushes? Living in great tribulation? Isn't it great to know a Savior says, hey, I know it. I know your tribulation. 
Now here's how Jesus knows our tribulation. Jesus knows our tribulation because he's in our midst. He's Emmanuel. That's the good news. Now if I left you and said, okay guys, Jesus knows your tribulation because he's in, your, in, the, uh, in our midst. Isn't that great? But there's more. He knows our tribulation, not just being our midst, because he's experienced our tribulation. There's so many verses I could point you to, but I'm going to take you to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2 tells us that this eternal God, Jesus, God's own son, he became man. He became like us in every way. He was tempted like us. He suffered like us and for us. So when he says, I know your tribulation, it's not just like I was in the midst or I see you from afar, but I get it. It's, it's, it's talking to someone who's been there. You know how there's this comfort for someone who understands that you could look in the eye and say, I know it. And it's not just because I know it because I'm next to you. I know it because I've experienced it. I felt it. I know that pain. I know that angst. I know that sorrow. And when he says, I know your tribulation, he knows it. How amazing good news is that? But there's more good news. Not only does he know it because he's in our midst. Not only because he knows it because he's experienced it. He knows our tribulations because he's victorious over it. He's the first and the last. He's like, I know it. Been there. Done that. Conquered that. So be of good cheer. You probably know, you heard, maybe growing up, uh, even studied one of the Negro uh, spirituals. Nobody knows the troubles I've seen. But you know, one of the verses says, nobody knows the troubles I've seen, but who? But Jesus. He knows. Emmanuel, that's your God. Love him. Worship him. Rejoice in him. You'll never go through a tribulation he doesn't know. You'll never have something he hasn't experienced in some way, shape, or form. Tempted like us, he knows. Not only that, he knows your poverty. In the Greek, there are two words for poverty. One is that many of us have experienced it's poverty where there's no surplus. It's poverty where at the end of the month, you got nothing else to do. You got to stay home. You can't buy that one last thing on Amazon. It's, it's that kind of poverty where the bills are paid and that's it. And barely, you're hanging up. But this is not that word poverty. This word poverty means you don't have the essentials. This is meaning that you are so poor that you are wondering about next meal, place to stay. I mean, this is dirt poor poverty. And he says, I know your poverty. And the question you want to say is, wait a minute. Smyrna was an amazingly successful, prosperous port city. So why were the Christians so poor? Do you have an answer? Because they were persecuted. Because they wouldn't do business with them. Because costing them something economically because of their faith. Being a follower of Christ caused them to suffer to the point of not just having no surplus, but poverty. And Jesus says, I know your poverty. But he says something weird. He says, hey, I know your poverty, but by the way, you're rich. So what in the world is happening there? And by the way, this is the exact opposite of what he says to the church in Laodicea. In Laodicea, they had another issue like, you guys think you're rich? You think you got it all? You're actually poor. So now we have the Smyrna where you think you're poor, but you're actually rich. What does he mean by this? Is this like telling your teenagers when they're going through that really hideous, awkward years and they ask you, am I good looking? And you're like, oh yeah, you look great. You look fantastic. 
No, you don't look funny at all. Your teeth should be that size. And everything's growing in weird proportions. Is that what he's doing? He's just kind of winking at him saying, oh, you think you're poor. Well, you're really rich. Pat him on the shoulder. No, it's more than that. Why? Get this. Lean into this. It's beautiful. Jesus makes them rich. Makes them rich. Rich through knowing our poverty. Listen, listen, listen to what scripture says. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he owns it all. Watch this, watch this. Yet for your sake, he became poor. And this is not the Greek word with just lacking a surplus. He became poor. So that by his poverty, watch, we might become rich. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ, who owned everything, who, who has all things, he empties himself of everything but love so that we could be filled in our poverty with the beauty and the reality that we're his and we're loved in Christ Jesus. We are rich in Christ Jesus. We have spiritual riches. This is the gospel. This is how beautiful it is. All the riches now for his children are ours in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, 3. The treasures in heaven that God has for us. It's true, they're now. We won't necessarily grasp them now, but they're there set aside for us. Jesus will provide for you. I know your poverty. I experience poverty. So that you could be rich. Jesus knows our poverty to make us, give us the riches of Christ. Not only that, he knows the slander. Jesus knows the pain of slanderous words especially from the religious leaders of his day and those who called themselves Jews, just like they did in Smyrna, but they rejected the king of Jews. This word slander means blaspheme. It's, it's, uh, here's a uh, translation of the Greek. It says, in, in any kind of speech that is defamatory or abusive. I've been stung by this, and I know many others have as well. He knows it. He's been there. He's experienced it. He's overcome it. Just this morning, as I was reading through God's word, I was in Matthew 22, and it was a story, and you're probably familiar with it if you read through scripture. It's, uh, it's an interesting story because the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders, they hook up with the Herodians. Now, this is kind of weird because that's after Herod, and they, these are like these, these weird Jewish people that are really more loyal to Rome than they are to anything else. And the Pharisees and the Herodians don't usually like each other because one is, one is really politically conservative and one is really politically liberal, so to speak, right? This is like the, the Democrats and the Republicans coming together. Why? To beat on Jesus. So they come together to beat on Jesus. Interesting, they say to him, hey, let's trip him up. Let's, let's see if he pays taxes. And so they come up to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, is it right that we pay taxes to Caesar? We got him now. This is going to be great. Let's see what he says. He goes, well, why don't you give me a coin? Whose image is on this? It's Caesar's. Why don't you do this? Why don't you render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God, give to God the things that are due to God? They're like, oh, man, outwitted. What do we say to that? By the way, whose image are you in? If a coin was in Caesar's image, whose image are you in? God's. Render unto God the things that are his. Right? What an amazing answer when he was trying to be slandered. He knows your slander. He knows what you're about to suffer. Now listen, this one, this one should make us like grit our teeth. Wait a minute. He knows what we're about to suffer? That's a tough one. 
If he knows it, doesn't he stop it? I mean, if he's sovereign and in control, because there's a purpose in it. He says this, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, which sounds like a really bad deal. When you realize prison isn't a place they go for a certain period of time, prison was a holding pattern to be executed. So when he says the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, it means some of you, Polycarp, are about to get killed because of your faith. But remember, the triumphant lamb is the first and the last. He knows what's ahead. He's the eternal one. He knows what's ahead for you. He knows what your life's going to unfold like. Maybe it's different. Um, I see my man, Matt Gowen, in the back. He just got sworn in as a Marines. Thank you for uh, serving. And, you know, he knows what's ahead of you. Uh, he can go with you. And you'll never be alone. Um, it's just so good to know. He'll be with us. He's in our midst. He's Emmanuel. He's going to get us through it. And one day, one day, he'll stop all of our troubles. In, in Psalm 34, 19, it says this, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But here's the good news. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. He knows what's going to happen. He knows why you're suffering. Your suffering, listen, our suffering will never be random or useless. It's never, it feels that way. It's never random or useless. He says, I know why. That you may be tested. <laughs> Thanks. Can I exempt this one? Can I clep away from this? Thing? I don't want this test. This is not what I want, but there's a purpose behind it. And I'm telling you, God's ways are on our ways and his thoughts are on our thoughts. And I don't get it. And most of the time I don't. And things will happen in your life. I'm like, are you kidding me, God? It feels like you're piling on. They had enough. And things will happen in my life. I'm like, come on, God. What are you doing? But we have to trust. He has a why. But here's what we got to know as Christians. It's so important. You can't leave here without knowing this. Suffering is not so that we are punished. Did you hear that? God will never punish you because of your sins. Wait a minute. He won't. He can't. There's no double jeopardy with God. God will punish. He punished his sons for your sins. It is finished. All the wrath that our sins deserve on him. He will discipline us, no doubt. But you want to say, God, am I being punished for something? That's a lie. If you're a child of the king, you are not being punished. Okay. Suffering is not so that we may be crushed, but that we may be refined. It's not to crush us, but to refine us, make us more like gold. Suffering will accomplish his purpose, and that's walking by faith. Are you suffering? He knows it. He's with you. It's got a purpose to it. And he knows how long we will suffer. It says for 10 days you will have tribulation. Probably not literal 10 days. This is something like he told Daniel in, in the, the book of Daniel. You'll have 10 days of suffering. It's a time period. But there's an end to suffering. Listen, lean into this. There is an end to your suffering. It will stop one day. There is a place where God says no more, not any further. I don't know what that place is. I love going to the ocean and just watching the tide come and go and just think that God's in control. No further. Right there. Whatever's going on in your life, God will say no further. That's as far as it can go. He knows how long. And one day there'll be no more. And he knows who is the cause of your suffering. For the church in Smyrna, they had three things. They had the Romans... The power of the world hates Christianity. I want you to know that. The power of this world hates Christianity. Whatever power there is, 
the Jews. They were a religious power. The religious powers of this world hates Christianity and Satan. There is an evil one. There is literally a Satan, an evil, and all his angels. But he's a defeated foe. He knows how we're going to suffer. Now let me hit pause for a very important thing. We're talking about suffering here. And this is suffering because of being Christians. But we suffer additionally. Our flesh causes suffering too. We suffer because we're sinners. We suffer because we're Christians following him if we're really living for him. But we're also going to suffer because we're knuckleheads, right? I mean, just doing the wrong thing. There's going to be consequences to the reality in which we live, being human. And, and sometimes you're going to do really boneheaded things that will cause suffering in your life. But remember, Jesus has paid the penalty for that. He has overcome the power of that. And one day he'll take away the presence of that sin. But there will be some reality of suffering because of sin. Okay, so that's what he knows. Isn't that beautiful? Then, then what the triumphant lamb commands. He commands this, don't fear. Do not fear because of why? Because of who Jesus is. He's the eternal one. He's the first and the last. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's in your midst. He's in complete control. Don't fear. If this is true, just think about it. Whatever you're facing, whatever brings you fear, think of Jesus. If he really is eternal, if he really is a living one, and he really is with you, don't fear. I'm in your midst. I got this. Don't fear because of what Jesus has done. He's victorious. He is the living one. Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. Not even death. Death will not be a passageway into him. Faith and fear are opposites. Did you hear that? Faith and fear are opposites. Have faith. Be faithful unto death. Our greatest example, was that not Polycarp an amazing example of being faithful unto death? Our greatest example and motivation of being faithful unto death is not Polycarp. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was faithful unto death. Even death on the cross, Philippians 2.8. Because death now, because of his faithfulness, is a passageway into life. Be faithful unto death. I wonder in this room, will anybody here have to be faithful unto death? And my guess is no. But the question I have for you this morning is, will you be faithful unto life? Will you wake up tomorrow and say, I want to live for you? I want to die to myself? I want to be faithful unto life. And what is the triumph of the Lamb, what the triumphant Lamb promises? He promises a crown of life. This is like the tree of life. The crown of life, the victor's crown that he has earned being the only obedient son. The victory in Christ is ours. And what does he promise? That we're not going to be hurt by the second death. This is talked about in Revelation 20, that time of eternal damnation that's coming for the lost, that we will be spared because of the blood of Christ, the work of Christ and not be hurt by that. Let me ask you this as we close. Is your Christianity costing you something in this world? Does your Christianity cost you anything? A relationship? A promotion? A reputation? And if you think of your life and your Christianity costs you nothing in the world, I encourage you to examine your Christianity. Are you really walking by faith? Are you really living for Jesus? If you're just blending in, there should, there's something wrong. 
For those who have ears to hear this message, there's a meal for you to partake in, a meal for you to remember. Remember who Jesus is. We can't forget it. Remember what Jesus has done. Remember what Jesus knows. And we remember these things to help us to be faithful. Faithful even unto death as he was faithful unto death. A meal that reminds us that there's a crown of life that is coming. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we could feed on your word. We thank you for just the beautiful reality of who Jesus is and the incredible comfort of what he knows and the amazing challenge of what he commands, but the incredible joy of what we will receive in him. We receive this meal from him today for those of us who are his, and we thank you for it. God, come feed your people through this bread that is broken that represents your body, this wine that is poured out that represents your blood. Feed us to help us to be obedient unto death and to drive away fear. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.